Good evening. It's good to see you folks here again tonight. I hope you all will excuse me for deciding not to wear my suit tonight. I did have this shirt and pants tailor made for me in Kathmandu a few weeks ago. Real cheap. Real cheap. That's one of the benefits of traveling overseas. There's things you can get easily there real cheap that you can't get here. There's plenty of stuff we get here you can't find there, but there are other things you can get from time to time that really are nice. Tailor-made suits, pants, and shirts are one of them. Real cheap. Another one's a good shave. <laughs> Plenty of little shops around Kathmandu where I can get a shave, haircut, head massage, about 30 minutes, maybe $2. And I don't even have to try to, try to shape it up myself. So it's kind of hard to come back to America after that and remember what it is to use a razor. So, but it's good to see you folks tonight. I know it's getting a little cold. It's a little windy. The weather's not so great. But the Lord bless you for coming tonight. And as I said yesterday, I'll say it again, it's a privilege and an honor for me to stand before you and share the Word of God, even with a bunch of empty seats. That doesn't bother me in the least. Whoever has gathered here, may we all be fed and edified by the Spirit of God. So, to me, I've never been one that's motivated by big crowds or TV screens or mega churches or anything like that. It's just a privilege, whether it's one, a few, or even many, just to share the Word of God. And so, I've seen bigger crowds on the streets that come to hear the preaching than you could see uh, in about any church around here. And that's not always a friendly crowd. So, I'll take a small crowd with empty seats that's friendly and it's not necessarily going to spit on me or kill me like in some of these other places. So, it is a real blessing. And I trust that there's something these days that you can get to give you encouragement to sustain yourselves in these difficult times that we as believers are forced to live in. But there's nothing new under the sun, and what we must deal with is not something that believers haven't had to deal with before. And it's certainly not something that our Lord hadn't, dealed with, hadn't, hadn't been made to deal with. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. We often talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel. And it is the gospel, as Paul the Apostle declared there in 1 Corinthians 15. But an integral part of that was Jesus Christ's active obedience during those 33 years of His earthly life. An integral part of the gospel was that He was tempted, not just three times in the wilderness by, by the devil, but tempted in all points like as we are. He was confronted by the law of God and His humanity, and He followed it perfectly. He was actively obedient in every jot and tittle of the law. And my friends, if Christ had not lived in His humanity that perfect life of active obedience, then He would not have been a perfect sacrifice. And without a perfect sacrifice, our sins couldn't be paid. And so we need to remember that the active obedience of Christ is what made Him that perfect sacrifice so that when He did die and was buried and resurrected, that sacrifice could be accepted by a holy God and the gates of heaven could be opened wide for those that would repent and put their faith and trust in Him. So I'm thankful for those things. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 19. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. A couple of verses that I consider to be some of the most powerful in all of Scripture. You know, we look at Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry. A lot of times He's presented today as this meek and mild teacher that just tolerated everything and just taught us how to love and... Uh, love and peace and all of this. and There are some statements that Jesus makes in His ministry that are very powerful. They're very powerful and they're very blunt. And they say a lot or speak a lot of truth. And I think the statement made by Christ in these two verses I want to look at tonight is one of those that is very powerful. And it shows us that Jesus Christ was more than just a meek and mild man who came to tolerate everything and to turn, to blind, turn a blind eye to sin as the world would have us believe today. Jesus came preaching repentance, just like John the Baptist before Him. Jesus came preaching that He was the only way, and that without Him, any man, no matter how religious or irreligious, would die in his sins. Jesus says something here in John 19 I want to look at tonight. But before we get into that, I had a very incredible experience Weeks ago, we were up in northern India in the state of Jammu Kashmir, which is a place where the Indians and the Pakistanis have long disputed the border. 
And it's funny because their regiments from the, both armies are high up in the Himalayas. And they've got guns pointed at each other. And they're always firing them off. One's always coming into the other one's land trying to provoke the other one to shoot. It's kind of a, an interesting place. It's almost comical. And we're talking about elevations in excess of 14,000-15,000 feet. Seven or eight years ago when my wife and I were in Ladakh, northern India, it's kind of a, it's a very Tibetan Buddhist area, a very dark area, um, there were certain places that we weren't able to travel that now are open. And one of those was a small village at the end of a road, right, literally right at the Pakistan border, called, called Turtuk. And what made Turtuk different then the rest of the Nubra Valley in which it was situated, the rest of the Shayok Valley and the rest of Ladakh, is that Turtuk was not Ladakhi peoples. Prior to 1971, this small village was part of Pakistan. And so the people living there are Muslims. They're Balti Muslims. In fact, the town itself is almost uh, uh, six or 700 years old. And so this small village was open for us to travel to. We hired a jeep and we crossed the world's highest motorable pass, which is at 18,300 feet, believe it or not. We crossed the world's highest motorable pass and we took that bus, Brother Ricky was with us, all the way out to Turtuk at the end of the road. So we left the Buddhist areas, we left the Nubra and Shayok valleys and came all the way up within seven miles of Pakistan. In fact, we could look up in the mountains and you could see the white tents of the last Indian Army outpost right below the snow line. And then right on the other side of the snowy ridge were the last tents of the Pakistani Army uh, facing each other. So we were right there. And in the morning when we climbed up to the Buddhist monastery, which was on the outskirts of town, we could look up and see snowy peaks, and just behind that was K2, which is one of the world's highest peaks. And so it was kind of an interesting place. But we went to this place with materials in, in the Balti language and the Urdu language for those Muslim peoples. And it was our desire to walk the streets and give out as many tracks as we could. We even took some Nepali materials. Maybe by chance we'd find some Nepali speakers there that are so dear to our hearts. But we were given some very valuable gospel material that was hard to come by. One was a recorder that was powered by, by the sun. It was a solar recorder that contained Balti language songs about Jesus Christ and it contained the reading of Scripture in the Balti language, the reading from the Gospels. And we had one of these and it was powered by the sun and you could just play it and the people would be able to understand it. And the, the brother that gave it to me said, I want you to pray over this. I don't want you to bring it back, but I want you to be very careful about where you put it. Make sure you leave it with someone that is a person of peace. Not someone that will turn it away, but someone that will keep it and use it. And we were also given a very nice bound Urdu language Bible. And he told us to do the same thing. Pray over this thing and make sure you leave it with a person of peace. So, of course, we committed these things to prayer and we didn't want to be hasty to give it out to someone who would just stick it on a shelf because there was no, no others to bring back. And so we spent the night and we walked through the town and we gave out tracts and lo and behold, we did meet some Nepali speakers. It was amazing. So we were able to give out some of that material we print in Kathmandu. And that night, Ricky and I climbed up with a Ladakhi brother who was joining us. We climbed up to the top of the Buddhist monastery that was only there for the Indian Army soldiers to use because the town was a Muslim town. And we climbed up to the top of the Gompa overlooking the town and we just prayed that God would provide a person of peace to whom we could give these materials. Well, we had left Jamie and the children below and had found a home and had asked if they could just hang out there for a while while we climbed to the Gompa. And there was a few people in there and Jamie and the kids got to fellowship with them for a bit and um, kind of mentioned the gospel briefly or whatever. There was definitely a communication barrier. But when we came back, we found that the man spoke English. So we said, you know what, we'd like to come back tomorrow and visit with you if that's possible. So the next day we went back and this man's name was Hussein. And we were really hoping he was this person of peace because we had it's time to go. We had to make the long drive back to the Nubra Valley. We weren't sure we could even go back because the day before, as we were driving on this road that hugged the river, there was a rock slide. 
And it wasn't like here in America. They don't just close the road down when there's a rock slide. They just put some guys out there on the highway and they watch it. And when they think it's safe, they'll wave you on through. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Drive on through. Drive on through before the next rocks come, next ro- next rocks come down. And so we could see the dust up above and we knew it was continuing to fall and they just motioned us on through. So by God's grace, nothing fell on the truck, but we weren't sure if the road would even be there the next day. So we were getting ready to leave and Ricky and I popped into this home and it was amazing what we found. You see, the Bible makes some promises. This is one of the reasons why I love sharing the gospel with Israelis and Jewish people. Even though, by and large, they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and a lot of times they're close to the gospel. The Bible makes certain promises concerning Abraham and the children of Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, He made this promise. He said, I will bless those that bless you and your descendants, and I will curse those that curse you and your descendants. I believe that promise. I believe one of the reasons why the United States of America has been blessed by God is because we've always been a friend to Israel. It's because the United States has always been a land where the Jew can come and not have to worry about persecution. It concerns me when our government starts to take a different perspective as we see today. But when God makes a promise and He says something, He means business. And so when we are a blessing... To the Jewish people, I believe God will bless us. And I believe it's the responsibility of the church not only to pray for the Jew. You see, we've been made partakers of the spiritual things of Abraham. So it says in Romans 15 that it's our duty as the spiritual benefactors of the Abrahamic covenant to minister to the Jewish people in the carnal things or the things they need in this world. And so it's always a blessing for us to seek ways to be hospitable the Jewish people. And that's Ricky, what Ricky's working on over there now is a hospitality ministry to Jewish backpackers so that we can share with them the good news of Jesus, their Messiah. And that's something that is a blessing because of the promises God made to those that would bless the seeds of Abraham. In Psalms it says, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem because they will prosper that love thee. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should pray that God's people will wake up and see that Jesus is their Messiah. So with all this in the back of our mind, we didn't figure there was any way we would find Israelis in this Muslim town on the Pakistan border. They just wouldn't be traveling there. But we popped into this house and we came to find out that this man Hussein, who spoke English, had seen quite a few Israeli travelers. Since they had opened the road, the Israeli backpackers that would come to Ladakh had started coming out to this village. And he said that he had a, what they call a homestay. Some of these people will just open their homes to travelers and they'll come in, you pay them a few bucks, they'll give you a bed and they'll cook some food for you. And he said for whatever reason, Israelis started coming to his home and out of 150 people that had visited the last year, 100 of them were Israelis. And he just talked about how he really loved those people and he enjoyed talking with them and all of these things. And it was an honor for him to open up his home and they had... You know, word had gotten around that if you ever make it out to this village, make sure you stay with this man if you're an Israeli. You know, the Israelis talk to each other and they always stay in the same places. So as he was sharing these things with me, it instantly occurred to me that this was our man of peace. This man had been a blessing to the children of Abraham, so God made sure that it was his house where we went to share the gospel. And it just amazed me that the sovereign hand of God, God looked down upon a man who showed kindness to people from Israel. And out of all the houses we could have chosen to share the gospel, this is the one where we went. I don't take any glory for that. I had no idea. We just happened to pop in there. Long story short, this man welcomed those materials that we gave him. He received the Bible. And we were also able to leave with him some Hebrew materials and asked him to please give one to each Israeli that came to his home during the following tourist season. So it amazed me how the sovereign hand of providence directed all of those steps in a place as far away from anywhere as you could imagine, literally at the end of the earth. And so God is a sovereign God. The divine hand of providence is an amazing thing. And everything we say and do can have eternal consequences, either for good or for evil. Because there's a governing God that governs every step. We've forgotten that in modern day churchianity. 
we think it's us that governs everything and that God is just a fairy godmother or a genie, we can rub that bottle and get whatever we want. But God is a sovereign God and He directed our steps in that far off village when we had no idea that's what He was doing. We even wondered if we even needed to be out there, but we decided to go anyway. Upon our return, it was an amazing thing because eight years ago, a friend of mine and I built a cross and the Nubra Valley, it splits into two. It's like a Y. One follows the Nubra River and the other one follows the Shyok River all the way up into Pakistan. And we had walked across the entire length of the Nubra Valley as far as the Indian police would let us go, as close to the Pakistan border as we could go. And so I felt like I wanted to go back and walk the other side. So Brother Ricky and I had a cross built. Anytime I use a cross in evangelism, there's a simple question I like to paint on it. In English, the question is, are you ready? And I find the cross is a very valuable tool as we go out and preach the gospel. Just to stand there or to stand in traffic or whatever and let people walk by, see an empty cross that asks a question. Are you ready? So we've done this in Nepal. I've been able to walk across all the way around the city of Kathmandu with the question, are you ready in Nepali? And we did the same thing in Ladakhi. And so we walked that entire cross, or walked that cross the entire length of the Shahak Valley and got to finish that job we started seven or eight years ago. So it was, it was an amazing time. And in things like that, we see and learn that missions really is quite simple. There's abundant opportunity to share the gospel. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to involve a business platform. It doesn't have to involve all sorts of programs. But in and through all of that, God is sovereign. And it always amazes me how He directs our steps, even in the, most, in the simplest of ways. And I want to talk about the sovereignty of God tonight as we look at these passages. You know, we started off this week, I wanted us to understand that if we are going to experience revival in our hearts or in this church or anyway, anywhere in these times, we have to embrace the context of the day, of the last days. We are living in the last days. We are not in the times the men were in when God poured out great awakenings on this country. That was a day and time when people in general feared God at least respected His Word. We live in a day and time when men don't fear God. When there is no respect for His Word. When His Word is considered criminal or unwelcome in the halls of government or in our schools. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that once said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation is the philosophy of government in the next. In last, the last generation, prayer was removed from schools, and now in this generation, that philosophy controls our government. The Bible wasn't welcome in schools years ago, now it's not welcome anywhere in government. And the people that govern this country on both sides of the aisle, both Republican and Democrat, are godless people. Godless people that do things for their own good and their own benefit. Even the most conservative Republican, my friends, you need to wake up. These people know what to say to get your vote. And once they get your vote, they have their own agenda. And it's not righteousness. And it's not the law of God. So don't put your hope in government. And please don't put your hope in a Republican majority in Congress. We've had it before and it didn't result in anything. Unborn children are still murdered in this country. Greed is still the norm. There's no truth. There's no mercy all kinds of adultery and sexual sin and all kinds of unrighteousness is still prevalent in our society. But we must understand the context of these last days as we seek revival. There won't be a worldwide revival. There'll be one more awakening, I believe, in the tribulation period when Jewish witnesses take the gospel to the ends of the earth after the church has been raptured. But we live in days of apostasy that will wax Worst and worse. The state of society is like Hosea chapter 6 we talked about yesterday. The attitude of most professing Christians is like those Jews in Jeremiah 42 through 44, as we discussed last night. So, in that context, I want to move forward the rest of our time together and talk about what I believe are biblical principles concerning revival. You see, we've come together for revival services. But let me assure you, my friends, you can't plan revival. You can't organize revival. It's something that comes from God. 
And revival is something that we should seek every day. Because every day we battle the old man. Every day the temptation to become worldly, cold, and ineffective is there. I battle it daily. <coughs> Believe it or not, I battle bouts of serious discouragement and depression in my life. You may not believe that, but it's the truth. So I must seek revival every day. And if it's not about a few services where we come together. I could drum up your emotions, and we could have a long, drawn-out altar call, and I could say just the right things that might make you want to come up here and get down at the altar, and everybody would you know, maybe cry a few tears, and then it would just go back to what it was next week. That's not revival. That's what most quote-unquote revivals are in this country. Revival is something that can only come from God. And it's something that we should seek beyond a few planned meetings. So I want you to understand that right here from the outset. Okay, I'm not here to make revival happen. I'm here to share with you what is revival, what's the context in which it must take place these days, and what the Scripture says about revival. You know, genuine revival is for the believer. A spiritual awakening is for the unbeliever. I'm going to talk later this week about how revival in the life of a believer automatically affects non-believers because it translates into Great Commission obedience. I did mention during our times of, of closing that you can't have general, genuine revival without genuine salvation. And I want to emphasize that each night. You can't have revival when you've never been saved. Jesus said you must be born again. Revival is the restoring to life or spiritual fervor in the life of a believer that's grown cold, worldly, and ineffective. So that's a key principle there. But I want to talk about another one tonight. Just as I've already said, genuine revival cannot be planned or organized, as I've mentioned. Revival is the sovereign act of a sovereign God for His glory. Not for our glory. Not for our church's glory. Not for the preacher's glory. For His glory and in accordance with His plan. His plan and purpose for this church. His plan and purpose for each individual Christian life in this building. And His plan and purpose for the ages. And that includes His plan and purpose for Israel, for the entire church, for human government, everything. Revival is for His glory and in accordance with His plan. It is when He sees fit, on His timetable, and on His terms. Now notice what pronoun is not included in anything I just said. You'll never hear the word I. Or you're not going to hear the word you. Revival's not about us. It's about God. Did you know that salvation's not about us? We often talk about God as if the redemption of man is the chief end of everything. No, my friends, that's selfishness. Did you know that the chief end of everything is not the redemption of man? The chief end of all things is the glory of God. And the redemption of man is one way whereby God is glorified. Praise God for the redemption of man in Jesus Christ. But salvation in Jesus Christ is not about us primarily. It's about Him. It's about worthy is the Lamb that was slain. If Christ had died and was crucified and buried and rose from the grave and not a single soul in the history of the world ever believed upon Him, He would still be glorified. When we preach the Gospel, you know, people often get discouraged when the Gospel is rejected or if you try to share the Gospel and someone rejects you, we'll often question, well, did we say the right things or did we do the right things? I've often found myself very discouraged, very depressed over the way someone reacted. But then I have to remind myself that even when the Gospel is rejected, whether it's accepted or rejected, God is glorified because the Bible says that the preaching of the Word of God brings glory to Him and doesn't return void. And when the sinner comes to salvation, there is rejoicing in heaven. God is glorified. But when the sinner dies in his sin, God is glorified. Because on the day of judgment, the man that rejected the gospel will have no excuse. He will attempt to bring many excuses and many false accusations against the holy God, but none will stand. The word that he rejected will hold him guilty in the last day. So even when men reject the gospel, God is justified. He is glorified. Revival, likewise, is about Him. 
And that's what we must remember. In a lot of churches where they have these revival services, it's all about them. It's all about the preacher. You know, the preacher becomes popular because he does the circuits and he's known as a good revival preacher and everybody wants him to come. Everyone wants to book him. And he won't go unless they can guarantee him a certain amount of love offering and all this kind of stuff. I've never been real pleased with the way a lot of that works. Never been pleased with that. I'll come and preach the Word of God if given an open door of opportunity, even if it costs me. That's just the way I, that I am. Some, it costs somebody to share the gospel with me. So who am I to go preaching the gospel expecting something in return other than the grace and mercy of God? But revival is not about us. It's about the Lord. That's why it can't be planned. It can't be organized. It's the sovereign act of a sovereign God. Just like salvation. Revival is the sovereign act of a sovereign God for His glory and in accordance with His plan and purpose for the ages when He sees fit on His terms and His timetable. Now, let's get to this passage. You're probably asking yourself, what in the world does John 19, 9-11 have anything to do with anything I just said? Well, I'm going to attempt to explain that. Let's read here. John chapter 19. Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's already stood before the high priest. He's been accused of all these things. And even the false witnesses, their testimony doesn't agree. But he's brought before Pilate. And this is what Pilate has to say in verse 10 to Jesus. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Actually, let me go back to verse 9. And went again into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, this is Pilate, Where are you or whence art thou? Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus didn't respond. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. My friends, those are powerful words. Jesus told Pilate, the Roman governor, He never chose to defend himself. He didn't have to defend himself. His actions spoke louder than any words. But he said to Pilate, you could have no power over me unless it was given you from above. I had the great privilege of preaching this passage to a group of believers, pastors, some of them Muslim background believers, some of them Hindu background believers that came from several villages, and we met in a compound in the southwestern corner of Bangladesh. It was a place where the most, one of the most, one of the areas in the country that, that uh, housed some of the most radical factions of Islam in that entire country. And right buttoned up next to it were some of the most radical elements of Hinduism. And out of those cultures, God had saved people. And there were small churches in areas of persecution. And these men came from afar. And we had the great privilege of sitting with them all day and teaching things from the Word of God. Once again, it was one of those scenarios where I really should not have been teaching anyone. They should have been teaching me. But it was a great privilege. And I got to take this passage and preach about how to handle persecution. Because when it comes to persecution and the enemies of the cross, we need not cower in fear. They can have no power over us unless it's given to them by God. And then we talked about, you know, we were trying to teach them some basic elements of theology. And one of the things that is often a mistaken theological perspective in the American mindset is what I call dualism. It's this idea that the world is a place where good is versus evil. And so God is seen as good versus Satan evil. Everything is good versus evil. Dualism. That's not a biblical perspective. The, the way creation is not God versus the devil. Do you not understand, my friends, that all things good and evil... The angels, the devils, all things fall under the governance of a Creator God who is above all of that. And so I was trying to explain to them the difference between cosmic dualism, this idea of good versus evil, 
and monotheism, which is the understanding that there's one Creator God who not only created all things, but sustains them all and governs them all. And so Satan can only operate as he operated in the first chapter of Job. He can only do what God allows him to do. God allowed him to test Job, but God told him you're not allowed to touch his body. The second time he came, he said, well, if you let me strike his body, then he'll curse you. And God said, okay, I'll let you do that, but you're not allowed to kill him. So Satan could only do what the Lord allowed him to do. There's a sovereign God who governs everything, good and evil. And all things will happen as He has determined. Satan will be overthrown. Satan was already overthrown in the Garden of Eden when it was prophesied that the Messiah would crush his head. But all of these things operate under God. So don't think of God here, Satan here. It's different. You know, Satan was a created being. In fact, I believe Satan was one of those cherubim that John sees in Revelation around the throne of God. The same thing that Ezekiel saw around the throne of God. They were covered with eyes. The cherubim. Satan was an exalted cherubim that was in the presence of God. However, in the presence of the throne of God. However, he wanted to sit on that throne. And so a created being attempted to overthrow an uncreated creator. And that's never going to work. But God is atop all of that. And because He's atop all of that... He controls everything, even those that would work evil against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was, I enjoyed sharing this with these brothers to say, look, I know you have to face persecution. I know that there's hatred for the gospel and what you face is real, but understand that these Muslims, these Hindus have no power over you unless it's given them from above. And if you'll get your theology right where that's concerned, you can go out with boldness and not worry about the consequences. So it was, it was, it was interesting to preach that same, use this same passage to encourage persecuted brethren to be bold in the face of persecution. But I think the message that Jesus communicates here, the sovereign governance of God is just as applicable to us as we seek revival. Just as to Pilate, just as to the enemies of the cross, just as to the persecutors of the church, so to us. We can have no power unless it's given us from above. As far as revival is concerned, as far as church growth, as far as missions, as far as growth and righteousness, none of us have any power unless it's given us from above. Do we truly understand that? Or do we think we have the power to make this church grow? Do we think we have the power to save souls? Do we think that we have the power to turn this nation back to righteousness? The answer is no. Except it were given us from above, we would have no power. Now Jesus states this a little bit differently to His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If any man abides in Me, he will bear much fruit. For without Me... You can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. A key to having revival in our lives, my friends, is to understand that without Him, we can do nothing. The problem with the church today is we think we can do everything without Him. It's that Laodicean church that I mentioned last night. You think you have need of nothing. But really, Jesus says, you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And you're lukewarm, and I'll spew you out of my mouth. Man-centeredness. Man-centered ministry. The pillar of last day's apostasy. We've got to cast that aside and realize that without Him we can do nothing. And that except it were given from above, we could have no power. We could have no power to be saved. We could have no power to live the Christian life. We can have no power to serve God unless it was given by Him. The whole salesman mentality of the church that's so popular today is wrong, in my opinion. And it's an affront to a sovereign God. How foolish to think that we can say the right words, that we can play the right music, that we can tickle all the right emotions and bring about revival. My friends, the church is not a business and revival is not a program or a product. It's a sovereign act of a sovereign God given on His time, on His terms, for His glory. 
You know, I often think about the typical traveling evangelist that we've come to know of late here in the South. I saw it growing up. You know, usually when a person says he's an evangelist, what that means, usually, is that it's a person that travels around to different churches. A lot of times he won't go unless the church can guarantee him a certain amount of love offering. But he's got a series of a few messages that he travels around and he speaks the same thing in all these churches where people are gathered because they agree with him and they want to hear what he has to say. And he knows exactly how to drum up the emotions. He knows exactly how to get this altar full at the end of the night. And he knows exactly how to get people to doubt their salvation so they get saved the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth time. That's the evangelist that I knew growing up. And usually his ministry has his own name in it. So the name of his ministry has his own name in it. I never did quite understand that. I never would want to put my name on a ministry because it's not me. He is greater than me, my friends. We need to realize He is greater than me. But anyway, that's the typical traveling evangelist. And it's all about going and drumming up emotions. And everybody gets teary, everybody gets repentant, and everybody gets excited for a few days, and then more often than not, it goes right back to where it was the week before. Because the sin in that church is never dealt with. And he goes on to the next place. There was a popular traveling evangelist that I used to love growing up. He would come and we'd have a big sawdust tent meeting. And it was good preaching. It was good preaching. But I saw recently on a a blog post or a newsletter he sent out. I mean, he's totally gotten away from the gospel. It's, it's really a sad joke. But he talked about how he needed some rest and how God had told him that he needed to take the summer off. Nothing wrong with rest, my friends. I'm being told by my trustees in the ministry that I have to rest these next couple of months. But he sent out this support letter saying that he basically needed $10,000 to be able to rest this summer and to sit under the preaching of another man. And he was asking people to to help contribute to this. And I'm thinking to myself, I just took a team of people to South Asia that involved many plane tickets, one across the world, several domestic plane tickets, hiring buses, carrying crosses at the end of the earth, printing materials that we could give out, and preaching to a whole lot of people, Muslims, uh, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, Hindus. And I think we did it for less than that. And that was my family and another missionary. And that included buying a laptop computer from my Nepali brother who needed one. What in the world? $10,000 to sit around and rest? But that's the mentality of the typical traveling evangelist. It's not about God. It's about Him and what He can do. What is an evangelist, biblically speaking? I consider myself an evangelist. An evangelist is one who preaches the gospel to the lost. So if you call yourself a traveling evangelist and you only ever speak to the church and you're never on a street corner, you're not a traveling evangelist in my opinion. The job of the evangelist is to model evangelism for the church. So he's got to be bold. He's got to be willing to go to the streets. He ought to know how to use a gospel tract. And he models it and he teaches it to the church so that they can be equipped to do the work of of evangelism. You see, the only difference between me and you, I have the gift of an evangelist. We're all called to the work of evangelism. But the gift of an evangelist is to help equip the brethren so they can do the work of evangelism. And that's why it's important to us in our ministry that we train others in the work of evangelism. But revival... Genuine revival doesn't happen because a traveling evangelist knows how to drum up emotions. More often than not, that's not genuine revival. That's a facade. It's fake. You know, everyone wants to run the church like a business. We think if we say things the right way, or we do this, or we appeal to this aspect of a man's conscience, then these things will happen, and we'll get the love offering we want. We'll have the response we want. You know, a lot of a traveling evangelist wouldn't come here and preach a revival because they wouldn't want to stand here with a bunch of empty seats. They wouldn't want to come here unless they could stay in a four or five star hotel and be guaranteed a ridiculous amount in a love offering. This is the way it is, my friends. It, it is. 
I mean, I've encountered far too many of them. That's not a traveling evangelist, and what they seek is not revival. Revival is the sovereign act of a sovereign God for His glory, and not for a preacher's glory. You know, when we think about business models and the way business is successful and we try to apply it to the church, or when a pastor thinks about how a CEO successfully runs a company and how maybe CEO strategy will help him grow his church, he forgets some very important biblical truths. One of those is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. And I think just as remembering that without Christ we can do nothing in terms of revival, we must remember this. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God doesn't use the things of the world for His glory. If you go back and study the history of the Great Awakenings here in America, you'll see that it wasn't the great teachers. It wasn't the professors. It wasn't the people that had all of the glory of man that were used to bring about these revivals. It was foolish things in the eyes of the world. Jesus didn't get the religious leaders of His day to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He didn't need governors or kings. He took twelve cussing sailors and molded them into men who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you realize that Thomas the Apostle brought the gospel to India? This was after the period of the book of Acts. In fact, there are believers in southern India, Kerala, that to this day claim that their gospel heritage goes back to Thomas the Apostle in southern India. And there's also evidence that Thomas traveled north and that he encountered... Buddhist and Buddhist monks and preach the gospel to them. You know, if you study the life of Buddha, first of all, Tibetan Buddhism does not reflect what Buddha taught. There are things that Buddha taught 500 years before Christ that agree with the Scriptures. And so when I'm preaching to Buddhists or sharing the gospel, I often talk about a few different stories in the life of Buddha. One of those is that he was standing at a Hindu temple which is characteristically filthy, dirty with the soot from the sacrifices. And a religious teacher came to him and said, Buddha, how long would it take me to wash away an evil deed with good deeds? And it said in this story that Buddha looked at the pillar of the temple. That was filthy. And he said, if I were to give you a rag and you were allowed one swipe, per year, how long would it take you to completely clean that pillar and wipe it away? And the man said, that's impossible, it'll never happen. And Buddha said, that's how long it takes for good deeds to wipe away one evil deed. That's biblical, my friends. And he taught that 500 years before Christ. One man asked the Buddha once, how can we get to our Creator? Or how can we even know if there's a Creator? And Buddha's response was, if there's a Creator, there's no way we could know Him because we're far beyond Him. We're separated from Him from a, by a great sea of suffering and the unknown. The only way we could ever know a Creator is if He sent a boat to us to take us to Him. Now, Buddha preached that 500 years before Christ. My friends, 500 years later, God sent a boat to take us to Him. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have a lot of fun sharing these things with Buddhists. And a lot of them have never heard these things. In fact, Buddha also made a prophecy that if a woman would come and ask to join the monastery, then it was a sign that 500 years after his life, his teachings would be replaced by a greater truth. And that they were to look for a golden Buddha that would come and show them the way. I just find it interesting that 500 years later, Jesus came. Jesus was that teacher that brought truth to all those before Him that were looking for a Messiah. The wise men weren't Jewish. They were Persian magi. They knew enough about the conscience of men. They knew enough that there had to be a Savior if there was any hope for us to be made right with God. God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Luke chapter 16 verse 15 also says something interesting. 
I get to rambling about stuff like that and I forget where I was or why I even went off on that tangent to talk about Buddhism. I can't even remember why. Please forgive me. Luke chapter 16, verse 15. He said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. As we seek revival, which is a sovereign act of God, we must remember, number one, that without Him we could do nothing. Number two, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God doesn't use man-made strategy. And number three, that which is highly esteemed among men. We highly esteem business models here in our free enterprise system that really promote greed as opposed to mercy. But the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination to God. So a lot of what we esteem in our churches are things that are esteemed among men, but these are an abomination to God. We cannot forget this. If I, you, or we have no power to organize revival this week in this church or in our hearts, if we have no power to do it, does that mean it's impossible? No. You see, God promises spiritual renewal to those who will repent of their sins and earnestly seek His face. Yes, revival is an act of God. Yes, there's nothing we can do to organize it or plan it. We can meet together to hear the preaching of the Word, absolutely. But we can't organize or plan revival. However, God promises in His Word spiritual renewal to those who will repent of their sins and earnestly seek His face. There's a familiar passage of Scripture that's often quoted with regard to our nation. It was written concerning the nation of Israel. And I don't think we should rip these things out of their context and try to make them apply to something else. But the Bible tells us that the Old Testament and those stories and that history of Israel was given for our admonition. It was given for our learning so that we could see what happened in that history and understand the character of God and learn from it. So I do believe these things can apply even though they were written to Israel. Second Chronicles 7.14 God is talking. He has appeared to Solomon as the temple has been dedicated or is going to be dedicated. This is when Solomon becomes king. God says, If my people, this is Israel, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. My friends, that's a principle that shows us God's character. God promises spiritual renewal and healing to those who will turn from their wicked ways and earnestly seek His face. It's a principle, not just for us as followers of Christ, it's a principle of nations. Psalm 9.17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. That's a principle of nations. If a nation knows God and forgets Him, it will be turned into hell. America's known God and it's forgotten Him. You can draw your own conclusion. But this is also a principle of nations. If the people of God will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek His face, He will hear and He will bring them spiritual renewal. You know, when this verse is often quoted, we often gloss over the phrase, turn from their wicked ways. We gloss over that because God forbid we're going to have to make any changes in our behavior. But my friends, key to spiritual renewal, a sovereign act of a sovereign God, is that we turn from our wicked ways. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night. James chapter 4, let me just read a couple of verses here. I know it's getting late. I'm just getting started. Anybody got to work tomorrow? Are we all, we all retired in here tonight? We, we, we can stay late if all of you folks are retired. We won't have to go home. James chapter 4, a few verses here starting in verse 6. And again, God promises renewal to those who will repent of their sins and seek His face. It says, He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. The same exact phraseology is in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. When the Bible says something once, it all gets your attention. But when it says it twice, wow. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. He shall lift you up. My friends, revival can't be organized. It can't be planned. It's the sovereign act of a sovereign God. But God promises spiritual renewal to those who will turn from their sins, humble themselves, and earnestly seek His face. My friends, if we're going to seek His face, that necessitates fervent prayer. As we seek revival, not in these services, but going forward in our lives, fervent prayer for such is necessitated. How do we seek God's face? We don't just pay lip service. We don't go to church. Seeking God's face involves prayer. It involves diving into this book. If we want to know the will of God, let's get into this book. This book is the will of God. Only God can organize, plan, or bring revival. But when He is on His throne, my friends, a revival preacher once said, revival is as possible as a morning sunrise. Yes, only God can do it. No, we don't have the power to do it. But He promises spiritual renewal to those who will seek His face. And if we'll seek His face, revival is just as possible as the sun rising in the morning. And that's a profound truth for which we can be grateful. He is greater than me. Jesus once was speaking to His disciples about the dangers of riches. And He talked about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He even said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And His disciples were discouraged and said, well, Lord, who then can be saved? And Jesus' response was, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. The same would apply to revival, my friends. Salvation with men it's impossible, but with God all things are impossible. Revival, spiritual renewal, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. He is greater than me. Conversely, and I'll just say this briefly, conversely, just as nothing I can say or do can bring revival, nothing I can say or do will stop revival if God intends to bring it. I told that story yesterday. That small little church in Enfield, Connecticut, July 8, 1741, that relatively unknown former theology teacher that was a preacher in a country church. If we were to go back and study his delivery that day, study his language, study his appearance, we would say, the modern day traveling evangelist would say, he did everything wrong. Stuffy. Nothing fancy to look at. He read his sermon. What if I stood up here tonight and just read to you these notes? Only God can organize, bring revival, but when He is on His throne, you all would be asleep. But this preacher was reading this sermon, monotone. And even those actions couldn't stop what God intended to do. People fell out on the floor in repentance. And a revival started. And that monotone sermon became a famous piece of American literature. When I was in high school, we had to read that in my English literature class. I don't think they let you, let you do that anymore. Because it's a powerful gospel message, I'll tell you that. It's a powerful hellfire and brimstone message. But everything Jonathan Edwards did that day, from a human perspective, looked wrong. But God used it. Because He uses the foolish things of this world to bring great revival. So just as I can't say or do anything to bring it, I can't say or do anything to stop it. 2 Corinthians 13.8 has a very powerful truth that's couched in Scripture and people often forget it. When I go out and preach the Gospel on the streets or am doing bold evangelism, a lot of times the greatest enemy we face here in America is other Christians. If I've been told once, I've been told a thousand times, you can't preach like that. You're going to turn people away from the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 13.8 has something interesting for us to all consider. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. We can't do anything against the truth, my friends. No matter how much of a fool or an idiot I am, no, no matter how foolishly I conduct myself, I can't do anything against the truth. I can only do something for the truth. We can't operate against the truth. We can only operate for the truth. So if this passage of Scripture is true, 
How could I possibly ever turn someone away from the gospel? Where am I going to turn them away to? If they're already headed to hell, am I going to turn them into hell number two? That's not possible. That's a foolish argument. And I grow weary of Christians criticizing people who want to be bold with their witness, telling them they're going to turn people away from the gospel. That's not possible. If God intends to save a man, there's nothing anybody can do to stop it, not even the evil one. If God intends to bring revival to a church fellowship, there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. He's going to do what He says He's going to do. We can't do anything against the truth just for the truth. Let us be people that do things for the truth and don't try to work against it because if we try to work against it, we're going to fail. I think of a a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. He was a wicked man, a wicked man, a God-hater. And he mocked Christians and he mocked the Bible. And he was from France. And he used to say that, you know, within a, he used to talk about how within a hundred years of his death, the Bible would cease to exist on this earth. And we would be forever rid of Christians. And the amazing, one of the amazing ironies of history is that very shortly after his death, his home was purchased by a Bible society that used it to print Bibles for many years thereafter. So when we try to work against the truth, my friends, we're going to fall flat on our face. We can't bring revival. We don't have the power. Only God does. We can't stop it. We don't have the power. And all of those great awakenings that happened in American history, there were a faction of dry, old religious professors that tried to stop it. The second great awakening, the old dry professors tried to stop it on the Ivy League campuses and they couldn't do it. Revival spread forth like wildfire. People tried to stop. They mocked the camp meetings on the frontier but couldn't stop it. In closing tonight, just as revival is an act of God, a sovereign act of a sovereign God for His glory, as I've already said, so is salvation. Just as I, you, or we cannot organize or plan revival, neither can I, you, or we save ourselves or anyone else. There are Scriptures throughout the Bible that are somewhat conspicuous. They're not familiar to a lot of people. I believe this statement by Jesus here in John 19 is one of them. But they contain a powerful, profound truth. Jesus' reply to Pilate was one of the boldest things our Savior had to say in His entire earthly life. Another one was just just a short time before that, I think it's in Luke chapter 19, when He was coming down the streets and His disciples and the people of Jerusalem had the palms laid out and they were crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord! And the religious leaders who should have known the prophecy rebuked Jesus and said, you need to rebuke your disciples for this blasphemy. And Jesus turned to them and said, my friend, if they were to hold their peace, the stones would cry out. That's another pretty powerful statement by Jesus that gives us a clue that He was more than just a man. He was God. The problem with man-made religion... Islam can claim to follow God, but it, deny, it, it, it commits the most wicked evil known to man, which is to deny the Son of God. To deny that Jesus is the Christ and that He was more, to say He was just a man is a wicked, heinous crime. The Bible says it's the spirit of Antichrist. And when Jesus made that comment about the rocks, He showed us, He declared very clearly that He was more than just a man. He was the Creator become flesh. There are powerful statements like that throughout Scripture. One of those is in Jonah. We know the story of Jonah and the whale. But did you realize that when Jonah went down into that whale, he wasn't sitting comfortably in a big old huge cavern building him a campfire, having him some food waiting to be spit up. He was down in that belly of the whale. The acid from that whale's stomach probably ate half of his flesh off so that he wasn't pretty to look at when he went to Nineveh. But it was so terrible, he actually thought he was in hell. And from that place, he cried out to God. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he said, he said five words that we would all do well to remember. Salvation is of the Lord. Another profound statement, just in a conspicuous place there in Scripture. Salvation is of the Lord. Just as we can't organize or plan revival, neither can we save ourselves or anyone else. That's why I personally, and I'm not trying to be critical of 
other people's convictions, but I've never been a big fan of trying to lead someone in a sinner's prayer. You know, salvation is just as simple as a prayer, my friends. It's just as simple as recognizing our need for a Savior, recognizing and acknowledging our sin, and crying out to Jesus Christ, putting our faith in Him. It's as simple as a prayer. But my friends, neither is salvation a flu shot that you just take. Neither is Jesus a shirt that you just try on through a sinner's prayer and then continue living your life however you desire. You know, if God's working on somebody's heart, I'd rather let Him do it. If God's bringing somebody or drawing somebody to Him, why would they need me to give them some words to repeat? I think our job is just to declare the Gospel very clearly. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and let the Spirit move. I've never been a big fan of altar calls. I'm glad we have the altar. And I think, I don't care if in the middle of my preaching one of you thinks you need to come down here and get with the Lord, be my guest. I wouldn't be bothered by that. I'm glad we have an altar where we can pray. But I could stand up here and we could bow our heads, eyes closed, and I could ask you to raise your hand and all of that stuff. I don't need to do that. I'm here to declare the gospel to you tonight. I'm here to declare biblical truth. And I'd rather let the Holy Spirit deal with you and not try to do His job for Him. Because salvation is of the Lord. Are you trusting in your church attendance tonight to make you right with God? God hates religion. Amos chapter 5, there's a few verses in there where He tells the Jews, I hate your feast days. I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your sacrifices. I hate your Sabbaths. I hate your new moons. They make me want to vomit. That's God. He says the same thing in Isaiah chapter 1. Much of what we call church in this country, God hates it. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It doesn't. Going to church will never save you. It doesn't earn any merit with God. We ought to come to church because we need fellowship one with another. We're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as the days draw near for Christ's return. This church never saves. That's why evangelism's never true evangelism is not inviting someone to church. I was in a post office one time, and there's a real strange man that works in the Conover post office. And I don't like going in there, but that's where my ministry P.O. box is. He's just a strange fella. And I just would rather not have a conversation with him. But one time I went up to the desk and I had to send some Bibles overseas. And so I took the ministry debit card and I went to pay for him. And he goes to looking at it and he says, Is this some kind of ministry? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, what gives you authority to use this, this card to buy anything? I said, Well, sir, I'm the head of the ministry and really it's none of your business. And he says, Well, I'm puzzled. He says, you're the, friend of, you're the head of a ministry and you've come into this post office many times and you've never invited me to church. Why is that? And I said, sir, because church is not the pathway to salvation. You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ before you can even appreciate what a church is. He never really said anything to me after that. <laughs> it's, it's usually just kind of a one word, hello or whatever, but I've tried to avoid it any way we can. But if you're tr trusting in your church attendance to make you right with God, it never will. Are you trusting in your good works? Isaiah 64, 6 says, Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before a holy God. Church attendance, your works, they can't save you. If you're here tonight and you've trusted in these things for your salvation, I implore you to repent and fall before Jesus Christ and cling to Him. If I were to die tonight and stand before God and He were to ask me why He should let me into His heaven, there's only two words I could think of to say. Thank you. Thank you. That's the only thing I could say if He asked me because my trust is not in anything I've done, any message I've preached, any place I've traveled, any cross I've carried, any Bible book I've translated into another language. It's in the merits of Jesus Christ alone. None of that means anything apart from Jesus Christ. Do you understand that tonight? If not, get on your face before God. Humble yourselves and put your trust in Him. If you do understand those things, let me ask you two questions. If you're truly born again, I want to ask you two questions. Are you living for the Lord? Are you telling others about Him? If the answer is no, 
then it necessitates a second question, why not? Why not? If the answer is no, then that's the reason we have no revival. And that's the reason it won't come. So ponder those things this week. I got a message from a brother today. I've stayed in his home and he said he was praying for me this week as I preached these revival services and he asked me to ponder upon a passage of Scripture because he thought it was one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture for the American church today. And I just want to close with this as we consider the fact that revival is an act of God, salvation is an act of God. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of, figs of thistles? Even so, every good fruit tree bringeth forth fruit, good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth fruit, good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, work, you that work iniquity. These words of Jesus ought to be some of the most frightening of all for the American churches today. Churches that desperately need awakening. Churches that desperately need revival. That desperately need that sovereign act of a sovereign God to do a work. Think about those things tonight as we close. Well, I guess we'll have a, a hymn of invitation. Humble yourself before the Lord. Seek His face. And He promises spiritual renewal. Only He can do it. But He can and He will. It's a promise of God. God bless you all. Thank you.